Hey, welcome back to the Star Take. Back to uh, the regular episode. So today we have Anthony Bullen on. Anthony Bullen's a Star Tech from Course 46 and uh, was a couple years ago accredited with the um, Meritorious Service Cross, uh, in the which is a, a pretty high up medal and it's given to someone who uh, it's, it's given for the military to recognize a military deed or activity that's been performed in an outstandingly professional manner according to a rare high standard that brings considerable benefit or great honor to the Canadian forces so today Anthony's going to explain the mission uh, that someone uh, uh, deemed uh, eligible for that award or that medal so uh, pretty pretty incredible and uh, Damien was the other StarTech on this mission. I worked with Damien in uh, Greenwood, and uh, great, both of them are, are great uh, operators. So pretty cool to hear the story. And then, although I kind of said I wouldn't, I, I pushed him a little bit on just talking about selection and best ways to prepare because it's nice to hear from a wide range of, uh, of people, and, and it's kind of an interesting topic now because selection's coming up not too far away. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Anthony Bullen. And related to Anthony Bolin, of course, uh, married anyway, is Ashley Bolin, one of the sponsors out in Gander, Newfoundland, a realtor. Uh, also Paul Jackman in Greenwood, Nova Scotia, and Nate King in Comox, BC. So if you need any real estate needs or you're moving to one of those areas or thinking about it, uh, consider going to my website and seeing all their information there. Um, that would be greatly appreciated. Of course, if you have any questions about the trade, about military or joining or changing trades, reach out to me at thestartake at gmail.com and I'll answer all those emails. I'll, there's also fitness programs. So thank you very much. Rescue. Like in Ganner, obviously we, we do get a... Oop. Oh, yeah, cool. sorry. Just yeah. hit the record button, I guess. Yeah, just to start. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, uh, I mean, I don't mind telling people about the, the story of that mission or, you know, it... Uh, maybe someone will, will learn something from it or someone will take something away from it that uh, a way of doing something or maybe a way not to do something. You never know. Uh, yeah. And what was the... Uh, a long time ago now. I mean, right. Ultimately, what was the uh, recognition that you got for it? Uh, eventually, me and Damien both got the uh, MSC for it, which is a Meritorious Service Cross. Yeah. Uh, it's like a blue ribbon with uh, a silver cross. Uh, we did it back in 2017 is when we did the mission and then we got the medal in 2020, well, kind of later in 2020 because of COVID, but, uh, right. yeah, it was years later we got the medal. That's cool. Yeah. I worked with, uh, uh Damien yeah, in I mean, Greenwood kind of sh- probably shortly after that he got posted out, right? Or was this out of Greenwood? Oh, okay. No, no, this was in, this was in Gander. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was years ago it was like 2017 uh we got called out for a boat that was forget how far i think maybe like let me see 180 miles or something like that i think hmm. roughly i i mean a lot of our missions happen roughly you know 150 to 200 miles out uh so 280 kilometers i guess it was and uh it was like a standard kind of long vessel from newfoundland i don't know if you've ever seen them before they're like uh it's like a shorter more top heavy boat Mm-hmm. That has a uh, a wheelhouse forward on it. And usually the back on is pretty busy. There's a lot of like fishing gear and, and right. a frames and stuff usually on them. Uh, so when we got out there, it was like five people on board, and they were uh, in danger of capsizing. They were kind of caught out in a big 
a big storm and normally they hold up in the ice because they were seal hunting so they didn't have a lot of weight on board hmm. uh but normally they hold up in the ice and that kind of makes it a bit more stable for them but now they had gotten out of the ice and they were in big waves and they were having trouble even just maintaining a heading uh but when we got over top of the boat uh we couldn't hoist to the boat it was kind of hmm. like coming up big waves and as it would go up a big wave, it would like kick off one side or the other. It seemed like you had no control if it was left or right. And it would kick off like up to like 45 degrees and roll. And uh, when it would do that, you would see like the the stabilizer. There's like giant arms that come off the boat. And they have like a, a cable going down into the water that has a, like a fish is what it's called. But it's basically a piece of metal that... Uh, catches the water and holds the boat stable and mm. when it would roll you would see that like almost plucking out of the water uh wow. which if it plucks out of the water it's like a real good chance it's going to just the other one's going to drag it and roll it on the side right so uh we were over top of the boat discussing hoisting to it uh i remember there was a giant uh, i don't know if you've ever seen them before but gray like fish bat those fish bats that are like you know maybe like four feet by four feet yep yeah and then probably about four feet high uh that was just getting like drifted from side to side on the back of the boat uh they ended up trying to push that overboard they pushed it overboard to clear a spot but there was we still couldn't get to it because uh because of the movement right uh and they had like a crane over top like a, a, a boom that had a winch and this winch block is about, I don't know, uh, probably about, if you, it was round, but it would be about two feet, say two feet by two feet. If you had to put it into like a cubic box or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And that thing was just swinging all over the place. So, uh, anyways, we talked to the crew on the radio. They were all dressed in emergency suits and stuff. And, uh, we told them like we weren't going to be able to hoist their boat. And uh, I'd done a mission maybe like six months before to a sailboat that was kind of in a similar sea state, like in a rough sea state and not controllable. Right. And the flight engineer that was on with us, uh, he was the same one for this mission too. And what we got on that mission uh, is with Dom Lavalle. Uh We got the guy to jump overboard uh, in a suit and then recovered him from the water because it was safer than hoisting to the boat. So we kind of opted to do the same thing in this mission. So they maintained the heading, or tried to maintain the heading, kept steaming into the waves, obviously. And uh, one by one, we got them to jump overboard. So we would get a guy to jump overboard, send a guy down, pick him out of the water. And then after we had the next that guy in the helicopter, the next guy was briefed to like jump overboard. How were they... Did they want to jump overboard or were they like super uh, hesitant? It's nighttime, I'm assuming. No, it was daytime. Uh, it was daytime. There was, I don't remember exactly what the winds were, but the winds were really high. Uh, and uh, they weren't hesitant at all, really, to jump overboard. It was kind of like a, a brief pause on the radio. It was like, yeah, guys, if you want us to, like, if you want us to rescue you guys, you're going to have to jump overboard one at a time. And I remember the captain being like, yeah, just wait one. And I think he just talked to his crew and 
it was like two seconds later, it was like, yeah, let us know when you're ready to begin. Yeah, we don't <laughs> have any other options. Very little hesitation. <laughs> yeah, that's what it seemed like. It seemed like they were like, they. I think they thought if they stayed on that boat, they were going to roll over and they were all going to drown. So uh, they were just like, yep, good enough. Let us know when you want to start. And we're like, yeah, okay, you can send the first guy. Make sure you don't send anybody else overboard until we get the first guy in. And uh, the first guy, uh, Damien, so back then I was RTL, like a restricted team leader, and then Damien was a team leader. I was the one running the mission for this one, but Damien ultimately was like, yeah, I'm going on first for the first guy. Uh, He got on the hook, he went down, and the first one, I think that we were kind of, you know, we train a lot where we do it in fairly, like, not big waves in, right. say, like, you know, a lake or whatever. And uh, I think just judging the waves was kind of the first reality check where, uh, you know, we, we knew they were big, but you can't really tell from over top of them exactly how big they are. And I remember seeing Damien go down and uh, he got hit by, like, the, the first wave he got hit by, he was just blown way back. Like the cable just brought up tight against the, the sponsum. And uh, then when he got pulled out of the wave, I just see Damien like skipping across the water, facing backwards, I'm pretty sure, if I remember right. Uh, just like a streak left by his fins, almost like a, like when you skip a rock across a pond, right? And then obviously swung way far forward again almost up to the boat way past the guy that was in the water. Um, So it took a couple times like that, I think for uh, us to get it dialed in. Eventually we kind of got the hang of it. The FE was basically trying to put him in as close as he could to the person. And then this is what we found after, you know, a couple sequences. Uh, But ultimately trying to put him in as close as he can to the person uh, and then give him slack and then move back and left and leave like a, almost like a J hook, we were calling it in the cable. We could see the cable in like right to Damien in the water. But then as the waves drifted him and the, the, uh, patient towards the helicopter, they would con in over top and then pluck him out. Yeah, I think uh, a couple couple sequences. What could be hard to appreciate is how dynamic all this is. Like, if you could just spend a bit of time to explain, like, even hoisting to a boat, it's not as simple as like the helicopter hovers and you lower the hook down and then you clip into the person and raise up. Like, that's what you're doing. But it's so dynamic because the boat's moving left and right, the waves are going up and down, the helicopter's hovering, and then you have the wind affecting the helicopter. And kind of like explain how it works with the FE conning and, um, you know, using the cable because they also have swing and and you spin on the cable and those sorts of things. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, it's a big machine, so it throws in a lot of TFZ. Luckily, this day, because we had such strong winds, the TFZ wasn't even a factor. Uh, like, TFZ is the turbulent flow zone, like, of air that's thrown down by the blades. Uh, Normally, can cause a, a swing or a spin this day that was an issue but the waves and the gusts were like so huge like not something we would normally train in because it was like 30 to 40 foot waves uh i know like i went down second so i went down and got the second third and fourth guy what happens is the fe 
sort of voice rolls of the pilot over top the spot that he wants to hoist to because uh, the pilot can't actually see where he's hoisting or what's going on. He's just going off the, the uh, cues from the FE's voice of where he wants him to move. And then the FE is the guy that's ultimately managing all this. He's the guy that's like controlling the cable, controlling the swing, controlling which way the helicopter moves by telling the pilot and winching you in and out while watching what's going on with you, making sure you don't get fouled. Like they have a really big boy job in the helicopter. Uh, and this day was, you know, this day was one of the, I would say bigger missions I've ever been on. But, uh, and it's also not something we would normally train in like 30 to 40 foot ocean swells in the open ocean. And like, I, I can't even remember what the winds were, but they were huge. Uh, it's not something we would go out and train in, right? So part of the problem is he's voice controlling to a spot that is ultimately moving with every wave probably like 15, 20 feet as you get pushed with wood swells, right? Yes. I don't know. Does that do kind of what you were looking for, Dylan? Yeah, I was just – I just wanted to kind of like uh, from people's perspective to understand why why it's a – a big deal that they're ju- jumping into this water, even if on a plain normal day, if you do a man overboard drill, it can be hard to line everything up to get the person out of the water. And then you add to that some bad sea state, the winds make all the water crusty and it's fl- and it's crushing all over objects that it's hitting. And like, yeah, it's just super uncomfortable. Yeah. These ones were like, uh, almost like, they were breaking over top of us. They were just huge swells that you were in. So uh, once you're in them, it was not not horrible. But when you're hoisting down to them, I remember, uh, so Damien's suit leaked. He did get the one guy. He came up. He told me his suit was leaking. I told him we would swap. And uh, then, because we were wearing dry suits. Uh, when I went down for the next guy, I remember going down and him, uh, like Sean, the FE, lower me down and once i got down to a certain point i was looking at the boat on the way down uh when i could get like visual with it and uh because you're turning on the cable as you go down that's just something that happens uh when you're not guideline especially and there's no way to set up a guideline in this uh instance but uh i remember going down and all of a sudden there's like i could see the boat which is a big boat and then a boat disappears because i'm like in the trough of a wave and then i see like a wall of water coming and you know hold my breath get smoked by it feels like almost like taking a a fall on like a static rope like it just you feel it rip in your harness like uh bring up tight and then you get plucked out the other side of wave so like there's that brief moment when you're underwater that's like super calm everything's nice and blue and uh, you know you get that cold rush of water but the next you know you're ripped out into all the wind and waves again so it took a little bit for us to get kind of that dialed i'd say by like the third or fourth third fourth guy we kind of had a better handle on it doing that whole j-hook procedure i was telling you about but the first two or three uh i mean i can't remember it was the second one which was the guy you went down or the third one that i went and got uh, I got hit by a wave and I didn't really know what was going on. But uh, later on in the video, I saw 
what was going on was that uh, when I got hit by the wave, the cable got taken back and kind of went back over the side of the spotsman and then got hung up on the uh, the nav light on the side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that wouldn't be a typical day when we're hoisting. That's not something that normally happens, right? But, I mean, there's something we can totally get called out to on either coast that can happen where you end up having to go get somebody in big sea state. And you've been out in uh, Gander for a while now, right? You're, and are you planning on – you're staying there? You're digging your heels in? Yeah, I mean, I've been in Gander for seven years, eight, seven going on eight years. And uh, in the last, like, year or two, I switched over to becoming a reservist. So uh, just after – kind of after COVID all kind of went away, I switched over and uh, put in my paperwork and released them. Now I'm a reserve Saratech here, so I'll be staying, I would say, probably for the rest of my career. That's awesome. I like it. And uh, yeah, for like, maybe you could just uh, explain briefly uh, because to I, I I'm always clear to people that the uh, being a Sartek is a reg force trade and it's like a full time thing. But you can get to a certain point in your SAR career with enough experience and stuff where there's an option to be a reservist, and that's kind of the position that you're in. Yeah. So I mean, uh, you know, I think I don't think there's any way you can apply from the reserves. Uh, but basically, there's a few guys like. Uh, Maloney and uh, Peterson and those guys, they they switched over from the reserves. But uh, basically, once you apply as a reservist, you know, you you end up joining as reg force if you're uh, selected and you want to go on course, you got to sign a, a reg force contract. And then uh, once you're a SARTEC for, you know, it depends on the, usually like four or five years, would you say is uh to become a team leader, I think that's yeah, roughly what it yeah, is now. Yeah, about that. Yeah, so once you're a team leader, there's a, a few positions in each squadron that are reserve positions as, Sartec, as a SARTEC, and uh, you can apply on those and then basically release from the reg force and go as a reservist, and, and you know, then you kind of get to stay and do the job, like operationally fly, and you're less and less, you know, you have less and less duties Actually, in some squadrons, there's zero secondary duties. Some there's small secondary duties that you do. But uh, your main job then is just to, you know, be a SARTEC, be an operator, go do missions and and do training. Yeah, not a bad, uh, not a bad way to kind of continue the job with uh, maybe less probability you get burnt out or uh, overly exhausted or anything. Oh yeah, I mean that's a real thing in this trade. That's kind of you know how that's what happened to me. I just. I wanted to uh, continue to do the job, but I just didn't really want to do all the uh, management side of it, like the office management. It's a pretty heavy workload for those guys that are STLs and DSTLs, and really, I guess any secondary duty, uh, you know, requires a lot of dedication and a lot of time put in. And, uh, you know, I wanted to spend more time doing the things I like to do because I did about – you know, it's just shy of 10 years before I switched over. But, uh, yeah, it was just, it was time for me. Yeah, and I think 10 years operational is pretty pretty standard. I think a lot of people do the, do 10-year operational and then either that avenue. I mean, that, this is for guys who have more military experience as well. Like, I got into SAR. I'm still super early in my military career, so I've got, got some legs left. But the other thing, you know, was reservist is... Uh, 
you don't move, right? So you, you know that you're going to kind of stay in that spot. and Yeah, and they're looking at more and more stuff for reservists now. You know, there's like, there's positions, there's a position, there's two positions I think open here uh, in Gander for reservists. But uh, it's just, you know, if you don't want to move, that's a great way to go. You can, and there is, you know, an appetite for them to serve like full-time class B or even now they're looking at changing it to class C. So uh, you'd basically have the same as class C, you would have basically the same uh, benefits and stuff as a rig force person. So, yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, if you don't mind, I'll ask one more. Uh, thanks for sharing the rescue story, of course, but uh, something that I kind of just came in my head was that selections coming up, you know, in February ish area. And so a lot of people like to know from different people kind of what your opinion is on the best way to prepare, or maybe your opinion on who you think that uh, they're ultimately looking for in selection. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a while ago now for me, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot about selection that's still very much the same. And I'm sure there's lots that's changed too, but I think ultimately they're looking for a team player. Uh, but they're also looking for certain like personal traits, like uh, dedication and like they're they're looking for someone who's not going to quit and who kind of can, you know, rally when the, when the chips are down and uh, keep pressing there. I would say the best way to prepare honestly is just be physically prepared to show up the selection. Uh, There's parts of selection that, you can't prepare for it. They're going to teach you everything that you need to know while you're there. I mean, if you are good at building fires and doing outdoor stuff, uh, that's obviously going to, going to help you. But the biggest thing you can do is just, you know, train, run the PT tests frequently, like make sure you got that, got a good handle on that. Uh, then be pretty comfortable with being uncomfortable is what I would, you know, suggest. I don't know if there's yeah much else to it than that. No, what I'm you with think? you. Is there anything yeah, else you can think of? That it, I my I I really tell people that uh, the PT test, like focus on that PT test, and uh, the other part, like if the other parts kind of fall into place. I mean, if someone hasn't worn a backpack or hasn't done any rucking, it's like you really got to go and do that. And if you have never worn snowshoes before, like you really have to go and like wear some snowshoes. Just you just have to think about like what a star tech is doing and the purpose of the selection part is, you know, it, it, it's cold. They do it intentionally in the winter because it's harder. Just, it's just fundamentally harder in the winter, but at least water's all around you. And if you're the guy going out to rescue someone and you end up having to stay for three or four days or something happens with you and you have to stay for three or four days to get out, like you have to survive through all that. And that is all has to do with durability and, kind of grit and like you said being able to rally when it like you almost want to be look see, seeking the hard things and being able to overcome them because that's ultimately what we need because no one comes behind us to help us <laughs> yeah i mean i i know when i went uh, when i trained for sarah i had no idea like i didn't know any saratex i didn't know anything about the trade uh, it was just based on what i thought the trade was and uh, I mean, I've probably trained a bit too much in the outdoor side of it, but I'm kind of from that background anyways. Uh, just recreationally, I spent a lot of time hunting and a lot of time in the woods. But uh, 
I mean, you don't have to be uh, Bear Grylls or or Les Stroud or somebody like that yeah. to make it through selection. You just need to be really fit, and you need to be able to suck it up when it gets tough, and you need to be able to, you know, put on your best face and just press when when the chips are down. That's awesome, man. Well, no, that's what I think, anyways. Yeah, no, this is that's that's excellent. And uh, again, I I super appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you're doing well and that you're operating and still uh, putting up the good fight. So uh, yeah, thanks for joining us and rescue. Yeah, rescue, buddy. Uh, nice talking to you. And thanks for having me. Thank